Yeah, that's that's exactly what I meant, Professor Waltersdorf. You know. Hello, I am Mark Standish, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies, casually known as ICS. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member, which is what we call our students. In this podcast, we get together to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We want Critical Faith to give you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. Each week, we will invite a new panel of guests, including past and present members of ICS and friends of the Institute, to join us. We'll ask them to share their journey in scholarship and how it connects to their faith and their lives. I'm Gideon Strauss, and I am an ICS senior member, which is what we call our professors. With us today, we have Bob Sweetman, senior member in theology. We'll introduce Bob when we get to our second segment. And that gets us to the first of our new regular segments. Don't miss this. In this segment, we will highlight all kinds of things that we don't want you as our listeners to miss. New books and articles in philosophy, theology, and current affairs, important events and anniversaries in these same worlds and in the church year, and every now and then, an event at the Institute for Christian Studies. So Gideon, what's something you think our listeners should not miss out on? So I've been going to Wine Before Breakfast, which is something I think that those of our listeners who are in Toronto or who find themselves in Toronto on Tuesdays should not miss out. Uh, Wine Before Breakfast is a Eucharistic service that happens early on Tuesday mornings. Uh, it would be good to be at the uh, space for the Eucharist at 7.15 in the morning. It takes place at Wycliffe College, uh, which is just a few minutes from where we are in Knox College at the University of Toronto campus. So yeah, that's something that I would suggest people not miss out on. Uh, weekly Eucharistic service, Wine Before Breakfast, 7.15 or so, Wycliffe College, University of Toronto, Toronto. Great. I've heard great things. So you should all check it out. I'm just going to give you a quick plug and reminder for our open house at ICS at the Knox College building, which is 59 St. George Street. December 1st, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. is the open house. Come by whenever you like. We'll have hors d'oeuvres and you can see our new space and you can hang out with our students, staff and faculty. Then, starting at 7.30 p.m. in the beautiful Knox College Chapel, we're going to have our Advent concert with In Contra Vocal Ensemble and Matthew Otto directing. We're selling tickets for that event. I think they're $50. Is that right, Gideon? That sounds exactly right, yeah. So visit icscanada.edu to buy yours.
In the second of our new regular segments, we want to give you a glimpse of what it is like to be critically faithful in a graduate school of philosophy, theology, and interdisciplinary studies like ICS. And so, we will simply be asking our guests, what are you working on? We'll be talking about seminars and courses taking place at ICS at this moment, the reading and other research our members are doing, our writing, publishing, presentations, and conference participation. So welcome, Bob. We ask our guests a set of three intro questions. First, tell me, what was your favorite childhood book? Well, my favorite childhood book comes from late childhood, and that there's a bit of a story behind that. Um, I was born in Japan, went to school in Japanese, then went to school in Dutch when our, my family moved to the Netherlands, and then went to school in English when they moved to the United States. And I was not the most adjustable child, and therefore was very confused by uh, all the moving and all the movement between languages, and really um, had a difficult time reading uh, until I was in about grade four or grade five. So uh, once I started reading, I didn't look back. I just carried right on. And uh, I would have to say that the most influential book I ever read as a, as a, a minor uh, was a book that I started reading in grade five or six. And that was The Lord of the Rings. I'm a medievalist, and I'm a medievalist because of the Lord of the Rings, like many, many, many other medievalists in North American culture. Um, what I loved about it was um, not the action. So my children all loved the movies, and they loved them because they were stripped of all the mythological and cultural elements and were turned into action films. But I loved the poems. I loved the fake histories. I loved learning scripts. I loved studying grammar of dwarvish and elvish. All the sorts of things that um, created a three-dimensional feel of, uh, of an actual world with actual people or persons that one might want to meet and never could. So nostalgia was an extremely strong um, uh, effect of reading The Lord of the Rings, which was then uh, turned into a philosophical interest in Platonism, where nostalgia is also extremely strong. Um, you know, the secret is a secret from uh, a golden age from which we've fallen, you might say, which is uh, part of an older Greek story that gets taken up and used as a way of pointing toward uh, the world of forms. So that nostalgia was really, uh, you might say, my first impulse to think beyond appearances and look for the real behind appearances, a very platonic structure. And, uh, and yet, I have to say, uh, a serendipity of my life. Hmm. That's, that's great. That's fascinating. Second of three intro questions. For our listeners who live in or may visit Toronto, what is your favorite bar or coffee shop or restaurant in ICS's hometown? Um, yeah, that's a, a hard question. There was a time when we would, uh, one of the things we would do with our adolescent children was go out to restaurants. Um, I've never been much of a bar hop. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I don't have good enough taste to, you know, have to find out where the really, really good coffee shops are. Although I had one graduate student from the center 
uh, sorry, for the Toronto School of Theology, who is really, really, really uh, a coffee snob. And uh, he and I went to uh, a conference in Philadelphia at Villanova uh, this fall, and we, you know, achieved the acme of coffee snobbery. <laughs> we we traveled 50 minutes by car to find a coffee shop that he had only heard of. Uh, so we went way out into Lancaster County in order to get this. And this was before our morning session where there was coffee <laughs> offered for free, I might add. So I've never had that. So mm -hmm. Coffee shops, bars, not really. Uh, it, it, but we used to go to restaurants with their children. And the one that I think has to be my favorite is now is Alimentari. Mm -hmm. So it's a little shop that sells high-end Italian goods and uh, that uh, homemade pasta, uh, homemade um, uh, cured meats, and so on and so forth. Uh, it's run by the son of one of my friends. Uh, Nick Nicholas Terpstra of the University of Toronto and former uh, chancellor and chair of uh, the Senate at ICS. His son um, uh, uh, apprenticed in uh, Italy um, at a, uh, a small farm in Tuscany where he learned uh, how to butcher hogs that he had raised, where he learned how to, uh, you know, um, smoke meat. Uh, he learned all kinds of Italian recipes. He ended up working in restaurants and so on. And his dream was to open what is a very common phenomenon in Italy, but not in Canada. And that is an alimentari, which is a kind of a restaurant uh, and convenience store all packed into one, which he has done. And the, the food is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, the atmosphere is wonderful. He treats his, he and his wife, uh, treat their workers really, really well. Um, yeah, it's the, the, the Italian food is to die for and Italian food just generally is to die for yeah. because it's wonderful ingredients cooked very simply. So, so the, the cooking doesn't get in the way mm -hmm. of the taste of the food, but it brings it out, makes it you know, that art that just makes it a little more punchy and so on and so forth. So, Alimentari on Roswell. There you go. Perfect. Well, I'll have to check it out sometime. Our third and last intro question is also the most controversial. Who do you think is the most overrated philosopher of our time, or if you like, of all time? Yeah, I don't really want to say about our time because I'm not sure I know, uh, unlike mo most of my colleagues, I'm not sure I know, um, you know, who's the most overrated. Um, you know, the, I would have to say the most unintelligible for me would be Badiou. Um, I've been forced to read him because of a couple of theses and uh, can't say that, um, you know, he uh, just was luminous for me. But that may have to do with I'm not as comfortable with the kind of discourse that uh, he is immersed in. Um, so I don't really know what the, the deep issues are that drive him forward and so on. So I wouldn't want to say he's the most overrated of the modern modern period. I would just say that of the modern philosophers I've read, he's the was the least easily or maybe just period intelligible. Um, and for my own period, so that the ancient and medieval world, um, that's just a really hard question for me because 
Um, just about everyone I study is smarter than I am. So it's really hard for me to say which one is overrated because that would, that would mean I, in my intellect, had a position from which I could judge what it would be to be properly rated, mm -hmm. underrated, or overrated. And when one's constantly looking up, it's hard to do. So, Bob, tell us a bit about what you're working on. Uh, my own research and writing, uh, I actually have three projects that I'm trying to figure out how to do either concomitantly or slightly serially and slightly concomitantly, but I'm trying to finish off a book uh, that I'm working on on contract with the Pontifical Institute for Medieval Studies pub uh, Publishing, and it's on the virtues of religion and science in Thomas Aquinas. Mm -hmm. Uh, the book is really a, an attempt to say there are other ways of looking at uh, religion and science as they function philosophically than the great post-Enlightenment um, cultural struggle between a scientific ethos on the one hand uh, that knows no a priori uh, constraints uh, and religion which is understood as profoundly and essentially a constraint mm -hmm. on thought, right? So that's kind of, I mean, in a very crude and schematic way, uh, the post-enlightenment uh, construction of religion and science. And, um, and while there are, there is, in fact, a, um, a theology philosophy struggle in the 13th century that you might say is a historical analog to that post uh, enlightenment uh, thematic, um, and it has to do with um, the theologian and the philosopher as competitors to the uh, formation uh, of souls toward the good. Um, between Averroists, that is to say, uh, followers of one of the great Arab commentators on Aristotle who saw uh, him as really unlocking the truly Aristotelian meaning of Aristotle's text and therefore as um, the um, arbiter of uh, a natural wisdom. Uh, that was whole in and of itself and was to be posited over and against um, uh, Catholic faith, uh, the alternative wisdom, you might say. So there was these, there were these two wisdoms. There was even a, a, an attempt to speak of uh, two truths that uh, usually contiguous and and complementary, occasionally uh, butt up against each other, and then one has to choose. Um, so that's as close as you can get, really, in the in the medieval world to that that dynamic. But when uh, religion and um, science are t were talked about uh, in the 13th century, most often they were talked about in terms of those excellences that could contribute, so dispositions that could be developed by careful living, by discipline, um, in uh, what you might call the, the flourishing human life. So um, that's the tack I've taken is to, uh, religion is a very complicated virtue for Thomas Aquinas. Um, and uh, science also has a number of different meanings. That's one thing that you realize when you actually study these medievals is that they will operate with five, six, or seven senses of a word. They won't signal which one they're using, and you better know how to look, uh, and so on. And so what you get is a very, very uh, complex discussion, very differentiated 
Um, and it's a totally different discussion uh, because it's about the formation of a flourishing human life. And it's about the ordinary the ordinary presence of science and religion in in uh, in human living. Uh, so it's open to everyone. It's you don't have to be a professor to uh, to understand and operate with science. You and nor do you have to be um, a mystic or a saint in order to um, be uh, transformed by the practice of. Religion. The second is uh, I've gotten very interested in our North American penchant for um, uh, competition as a horizon of good that is a, that is a framework for organizing the other goods of uh, social life. And it seems to me that something that becomes that culturally uh, important um goes back to uh deep things uh in the the history of the civilization that produces such an ethic and so uh, that's what i've been looking for is where does this lionization you might say of competition the the uh, the raising it up to be the the horizon of horizons where might this come from? And um, because I work on the rhetorical tradition, so I'm interested in philosophy, for example, as as a, a kind of discourse that tries to put people in motion toward their good, toward their personal and social transformation. Uh, and that involves rhetorical, self-conscious rhetorical strategies. Um, I got interested in the rhetorical tradition as a theoretical edifice, and one of its modalities is emulatio or competitive imitation. And it's been following that trail um, that I've uh, produced a number of st of uh, studies of emulatio among saints, so competitive imitation in saints' lives, uh, competitive imitation as a pedagogical ideal, uh, and of course as a political ideal uh, in a uh, in a political culture that has atomized um, the holding of power. Uh, its power is structured uh, around one-to-one -one human um relationships mm -hmm. and therefore the vassal's competitive limitation with the Lord is a, a very important thing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that's something uh, that I hope to pursue once this <laughs> book on Thomas Aquinas is finished. And um, uh, one of my former students or soon to be former students, Joshua Harris is uh you know, has submitted his thesis and hopefully will defend soon. Uh, one of the things that he's done is he's been snooping around in Adam Smith mm. and in his uh, treatise on uh, on mor moral philosophy and emulatio uh, is everywhere there. So it, you, it does seem to be that it doesn't die e even as the rhetorical tradition um, ceases to be as important a provider of of a formal uh, scholarly uh, language, um, but rather does make it into the modern world just where you'd expect it to in capitalism in its beginnings. So that's a second project. And then a third project is uh, a labor of love, and it's about love, and that is the betweenness of love that you see in uh, the Symposium of Plato. And uh, <laughs> the a uh, strange, inebriated, uh, 
stumbling articulation of contradictions that uh, are the denouement of that particular dialogue, right? It's Alcibiades, the drunken, spurned lover of uh, Socrates, um, and the appropriation of this kind of uh, a discourse of uh, contradictions in uh, the mystical tradition. So a very different tradition, and yet here it all is back again, and this is something that I've just started working on. So, in uh, and I play on <laughs> Jim Oltice's work on uh, the wild spaces of love. Uh, you know, he's he's always talking about dancing, but uh, in this particular love language, it's clearly languishing in the wild spaces. Mm-hmm. So. Anyway, there you go. Well, I can't wait for those to uh, to come out when they do and to uh, have a look. And I'm sure our listeners will as well. Thank you, Bob, for having this conversation with me. It's been great. In the third of our new regular segments, we want to talk directly to the professors of the future and their professors today. Moving on from what you've been working on, Bob, we will talk about what it is like to be a scholar and how we made our way to academic lives. We hope over time to map the journey from being an undergraduate student to being a professor of philosophy or theology, with an emphasis on teaching philosophy in undergraduate programs. This week, we will each talk a little about something that happened in our undergraduate years that moved us in the direction of where we are now as faculty at the ICS. So, Bob, what happened to you as an undergraduate? Yeah, that's that's actually kind of an interesting story. I uh, I my la- I sort of lost my I, I was doing fine as a, a high school student, and then in my last year, I sort of lost my way, lost my sense that. Um, this kind of formation uh, was important to me, uh, that it did things for me and so on and so forth. And uh, it was, I went through the motions. I was interested in other parts of life, uh, not, not exactly a building parts of life. I was on a little bit of a wild tangent um, and uh, entered university or university at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, because I had scholarship money. And I thought, well, I don't really want to go into the factory right away, but surely that's where I'll end up. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't very, uh, motivated. And my first year I did not terribly well. Um, it was really a continuation of my last year of high school, but of course I was paying a lot more money for it, or rather my parents were paying a lot more money for it. And then I had the scholarship money where I could pay my, my half. Um, but in, by the second year, um, something started to happen. And that is that, um, in the context of taking distribution requirements, I started to realize that, uh, the, the life of the mind, the, uh, the capacity to, uh, begin to connect, uh, widely dispersed phenomena in and through concepts and arguments was really, um, it was really, really a trip. Uh, if I can put it that way, it was, uh, it just, it felt 
really good, um, to feel smart. And this is not something that I had ever really felt in my life. So for the first time, I was feeling smart. And uh, it was a drug, I have to say. And so I started piling on courses and... Uh, and I really haven't looked back since. So, you know, from, uh, well, I'll do, I'll do a couple of years and do some partying and then go into the factory. Uh, I, uh, you know, suddenly I was taking on an honors major and taking overloads and doing summer school and, uh, and trying to work on the side and so on. And, uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was a surprise, not only to myself. But to my parents, <laughs> and most importantly to my high school teacher. So years later, I think my father ran into one of my former high school teachers and said, "Yeah, well, Bob's has a PhD in medieval studies, and he's teaching uh, at the Institute for Christian Studies, he's teaching graduate students." And the, when the guy regained consciousness, he said, "Well, <laughs> he showed none of that potential when he was here." Oh my goodness! When you think back, can you remember um, undergraduate courses that you particularly enjoyed? Yes, uh, Ron Wells was probably the finest showman pedagogue of the history department at Calvin College when I was there. And he had a course on 19th century, um, 19th century American history. Um, and it was offered in the summer. And because, you know, I had, you know, for a year and a half, I didn't really do very well. So in order to, uh, get myself in a position where I'd be attracted to graduate schools, I had to do a lot of extra courses to build up my GPA. So I, I asked if I could take this course in the summer and he was mad at me. He thought I was sloughing off because generally speaking, the, uh, because the summer school was very constricted, uh, it was hard to demand as much as of students. Uh, and so he gave me a supplementary reading list because I had to take the course for honors. Uh, that was worthy of a top flight graduate school. I mean, I was reading and reading and reading and not sleeping, but just reading. And, uh, but these lectures were absolutely fascinating. And suddenly I realized, um, that it, the historical discipline allowed you to deal with the great questions of life as well. It wasn't just philosophy, but it was history uh, that allowed this um, because, you know, the issues of slavery and, uh, and of uh, immigration, you know, the sorts of things we're still struggling with in, in North America uh, suddenly came to the fore as matters of conscience. And that, that caught me. And he was a great showman and, uh, you know, his lectures just sparkled. Um, so yeah, that was, that was one course that really uh, knocked me out. And, uh, another one was in my second year and it was probably a very important one in my turning toward the academy was the basic philosophy course with Nick Waltersdorf. And what drew me was, I think, um, uh, his tremendous, pedagogical compassion. Um, all these students, most of whom are grew up in Western Michigan with, with the, the, uh, you know, kind of a middle-class Midwestern sense of the world, actually quite, quite local, locally focused with not a lot of a sense of, you know, what's out there. 
And of course, never having read anything in philosophy. And, you know, so we would ask questions that were stuttering and halting and ungrammatical and, uh, and so, so, so stuck on the surface of things. And he would just start working in his Walter Storfian way and start, well, do you mean? And then he would, you know, start to go. And by the time he was done, of course, it was one of the great philosophical questions. And you'd go, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I meant, Professor Walters Dark. You know? But it, I saw this, right? I saw this happen when I asked stupid questions that they were, that, that he found some kernel in there because you could see the continuity, but it wasn't really the same question. But you were, you know, he found your, moment of intuition and found a way to give it voice. And it was really, really an amazing experience. And I'll be forever grateful to him. Huh. Um, a little earlier when you were talking to Mark, you talked about your interest in Emolaccio. Um, do you have a relationship like that to any of your teachers when you were an undergraduate or not really? No. Uh, you know, I just, it wasn't really until my last year that even th I even thought that graduate school was possible. Um, and it all seemed very much above me. Um, th there was a sense of, uh, what they do and think, uh, was very, very attractive to me. So of course, that's the doorway into mimesis or imitation. Um, but competitive in the sense that, um, I love this so much. I would outdo you if only I could, which is what I, that's the emulative, uh, um, what instinct. Um, I'm not sure I had that, not very clearly anyway. Uh, and I mean, that was also true in graduate school. I started off at Johns Hopkins studying with uh, John Baldwin, who was, who was, you know, one of the great American medievalists of his generation. Um, you know, just far above. I still have this. The philosophers I study are, are, they're just smarter than I am. So while I want to be able to know enough to be part of the club, I'm, I'm not expecting to rise like cream to the top. If you were to think back to your undergraduate years as a student, specifically in philosophy, you mentioned a little bit about Volterstorff. Um, what did you see done well in the teaching of philosophy at the undergraduate level? Well, I mean, the philosophers I had um, were uh, uh, Nick Waltersdorf, Alvin Plantinga, um, oh gosh, uh, Ken Kenindike, and, um, and Evan Runner. So, uh, with, with Alvin Plantinga, uh, in particular, but, um, Nick Waltersdorf and Ken Kenindike as well. They were all three were analytically trained. They were really very good at, uh, helping you to see how to formulate argumentation, both informally and then later formally. Um, and to care about, um, uh, valid argumentation and uh, to begin to watch what you say to, you know, to be able to, as it were, step back when you're arguing with someone and is this really a valid argument or am I engaged in some kind of conceptual sleight of hand? And mm -hmm. so as a, as a way of self critique and of building oneself into a more, um, weighty, uh, interlocutor, um, that was really very important. And, um, 
I mean, their Christian conviction was uh, always there, uh, uh, but it only really came out, shall we say, doing sort of classic philosophy of religion in the analytic tradition where you're taking religious propositions and analyzing them when they become connected to other propositions to see whether they're, you know, this can be defended and so on and so forth. And that, to be honest, was not where my heart was. But when I took H. Evan Runner, and I have to say I cheated, I didn't take any semester courses. I took an intercession course. So I got uh, his... What is an intercession course? Oh, uh, sorry. Yeah, it's uh, every January um, you take just one class. So you take uh, three classes or four classes or classes in uh, the fall semester and in the winter semester. But then in January, you take a, a ninth class, and that's uh, that's all you're doing. So uh, all I did was read neo-Calvinist stuff, uh, W.V. and, and Runner, um, and Hausfart, and people like that. And uh, so, I mean, this was the first, you know, the first class was the equivalent runner's version of the transcendental critique. So you had this sense of religion sort of lying at the base of, of all this uh, philosophical work. And that was very, uh, very, very uh, it, um uh, moving. Uh, and then uh, the second week was uh, the modal analysis, and that was a morass, right? It was like you felt yourself like Peter starting to doubt and starting to sink into the modal morass. Um, and then the third uh, week was really, you know, the the third part of the of the new critique. So this is talking about institutions and about normative visions. So this of is This is yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, as modified for just for those uh, of our readers who have no idea about this. Whole oh, tradition. sorry. Yeah. yeah. So. So anyway, that was very exciting because what it introduced you to is the possibility of um, uh, self-consciously Christian institutions that are engaged in socially transformative tasks. And that was, you know, so you could leave the class singing the Te Deum Laudamus, right? Uh, you know, that was all up, you know, raring to go to start a Christian political party or whatever. Uh, yeah, so that was, so the sense that there was a worldwide calling for um, you know, self-consciously Christian philosophers doing uh, a kind of uh, Christian philosophy um, that was really um, that was more implicit in my other classes, and it was um, you might say evangelistically present in uh, the work of uh, H. Evan Runner, and I think that's what he was. He was an evangelist for a kind of Kuyperian social project, and he used Dovid's philosophy as his uh, as his hook. Yeah. So to reach back to something that you you uh, talked about earlier with Mark, you said that as a child, uh, one of the books that really captured your imagination was Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, and that there's a connection between that and your current vocation as a medievalist. Did that connection become clear to you during your undergraduate years already? Was there a sense that that love of of things that you found in Lord of the Rings connected to an interest in in uh, the Middle Ages or in history or not history? Yet? Yes, history. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, I started off as a biology major <laughs> because in my high school, um, 
the sciences, the STEM disciplines, and then some of the other sciences were really what had been emphasized, and they had excellent faculty. And the the faculty in uh, the the humanities, um, the languages were good, were very good actually, Latin, Spanish, and German. Uh, they they were taught very well, um, but the the English and history was very interesting. They, they were they were uh, they those were the weakest the weak sisters of the program. The English only because um, the the teachers tended to be young and inexperienced and still learning their craft, uh, and and in history because they had been embalmed several decades before and. Uh, Honestly, <laughs> oh, it was just so sad. But anyways, you know, that was kind of the way it was. And so it wasn't really respectable. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I started out as a biology major until I hit, um, <laughs> until I hit genetics, which was their, you know, that was their weeder course, right? To find out if you were really serious or not. And it was, you know, all the stuff with probability and, and so on and, uh, fruit flies. And I had a penchant for killing. The fruit flies when I was trying to mate them on any, um, it was it was a sight to behold <laughs> anyways and I realized that you know I just this was not really turning my crank I wasn't really very interested in this and that this would rush me into the factory if I kept trying to do this but I thought well what what do I really care about and it was the history classes so then I applied to the history department and they accept me accepted me as a major and yeah, um, that's so, yeah, the historical stuff. But the medieval stuff came very late. Uh, my early interest was, look, I was born in Japan. Somewhere in there is is um, a sense of the Japanese language that could probably come out with uh, a bit of work. And so I started, uh, you know, and, and um, Edwin Van Clay was the... the uh, the East Asia specialist they had who was he was just very learned and uh kind of terrifyingly Mandarin. His you know, you are what you study very often, historians anyway. So, you know, he, he had his kimono jacket on when he was in his office and uh you know, and he had this sort of goatee and spoke in this, you know, not a fake Chinese accent or anything like that, but, but almost shading in that direction. Anyways, I found him very fascinating and he was so learned. Uh, so that's what I was going to do. Uh, but then in 1975, um, I went to Europe and discovered this amazing, all these, what? Relic, relicta, relics of, uh, you know, of, of the medieval experience. And, uh, because I'd been, you know, doing these courses on things like traditional Japanese culture, which is very, which is similar in, ma- in many ways, right? Uh, Tokugawa and, uh, Chicago and so on. It was like, oh, I don't have to do Japanese stuff. I could do this. So I made this. 90 degree turn, I guess, and uh, from East Asian studies to medieval studies. So, um, based on your experience, what would you say, what what makes for a, a good teacher at the undergraduate level? Well, I think the most important thing is, uh, I mean, nowadays, graduate students actually get some training in teaching, but that wasn't the case for the generation before me, nor even for me. 
uh, we, I mean, I was thrown into uh, classes as a, as a teaching assistant at a certain point, um, but there, were, there was no training for that. Um, but if you love your discipline, that is contagious. If you treat it as just the most fascinating thing in the world because you believe that right down to your socks, um, it's very hard to avoid that enthusiasm. Um, it's, 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 it gets picked up. And, uh, that's certainly what worked for me. You know, every, everyone who I, um, uh, really felt drawn to, um, loved, just loved what they were doing when they were, uh, thinking about historical phenomena, when they were thinking about arguments and ideas, when, um, yeah, it was, they just loved it and they thought it was really important and they showed, um, not just by their enthusiasm, but also just by the way they organized material that this was a way into the secrets of the universe and it was, it was absolutely magnetic. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, and then as a last question uh, for today, we're going to have many future conversations about your graduate school experience and all of that. But thinking about your experience as an undergraduate student, listening to you, I was uh, um, surprised by the way things sort of worked out for you, right? You You came out of high school not thinking of yourself as a prospective scholar, not necessarily thinking that this was going to go somewhere academically speaking, taking, you know, being a biology major. And then these these turns happened out of your experience. The the experience sort of unfolded possibilities for you that that ended up with you being um, an historian and teaching in a in a graduate school um, for philosophy. And I actually found that quite encouraging to listen to, you know, thinking about people going into an undergraduate program and being unsure about themselves or not sure about what they want to do. What advice or encouragement would you have for any undergraduates that might be listening to this podcast? I'm a, I'm kind of a big, uh, uh, you know, examine your gut kind of person. In other words, um, I kind of think that one of the ways that our Lord works to uh, suggest things, invite you to be in certain ways, is through what what garners your enthusiasm. So when you, when you react enthusiastically, um, you should take that very seriously as a call. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Critical Faith, and I look forward to future conversations with you here. And that brings us to the fourth and last of our regular segments. And to copy the example of NPR's pop culture happy hour, our favorite segment every week, What is Your Pleasure?, this is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we are watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Gideon, what's your pleasure? Well, this week I'm all about the Eucharists uh, in our segment about uh, things not to miss. I talked about wine before breakfast, which is uh, a Eucharistic service that I enjoy on Tuesday mornings. 
I also really enjoy the rock Eucharists that happen every month or so at Church of the Redeemer, which is an Anglican or for our American friends Episcopalian uh, parish here in the heart of Toronto. It's also walking distance from Knox College, which is where we as uh, Institute for Christian Studies is situated. And uh, it's a Sunday evening service that they do every once in a while. It's a standard Eucharistic service in terms of its format. But each of these rock Eucharists uses the music of um, a great singer-songwriter or a band or sometimes a, a moment in history or a movement. Um, and um, I just love these rock Eucharists. And so recently I attended a rock Eucharist that featured the music of the band Green Day, uh, which apparently, according to those of my friends who are serious about punk rock, is uh, sort of punk rock light. Um, but this was uh, just a wonderful encounter for me. I did not grow up with the music of Green Day, and so they, they don't feature in my own sort of like musical memory. But the five songs that were used as parts of this Eucharistic service were just uh, wonderful. It's also seriously um, uh, the loudest worship service I've ever attended. Um, and sort of like my whole body vibrated to the the, the bass guitar uh, line. Um, but uh, and this is not a church does sort of loud rock music regularly. Even the rock Eucharists tend to be more sort of folky. But I was just moved by the the lyrics and the the music of these particular songs. And so my pleasure at the moment is Green Day. Um, I'm listening to Green Day for the first time in my life. Wow, that brings me back to grade six, to be honest. <laughs> Walking to school with this huge CD player in my pocket. I don't know how my pocket fit that CD player, but it did. Listening to Green Day's Dookie. So uh, hopefully if there's some of the same songs, I'd love to check that out. Oh, wow. Um, for me, my uh, pleasure is a new single by the Avett Brothers. The Avett Brothers are a band nice. that um, in the beginning of my university days, I kind of fell in love with. And they have sort of um, become poppier as the years have gone on. But this new single um, is kind of going back to their roots. It is called The Roses and Sacrifice by the Avett Brothers. Um, which is hopefully part of an upcoming album. Um, if the album sounds like this, I'll be really into it. Oh, that sounds awesome. I'll certainly be looking for that myself now. And that brings us to the end of our show this week. If you would like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can check us out at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can find me at Mark Standish, and you can find my co-host at, at Gideon Strauss. And you can follow ICS at, at INSCHR. And so from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and it keeps us on their radar. And most importantly, tell your friends. See you next time. <music> 